0: listening to Unjiggered, a bartender podcast where we interview highly successful bartenders about their careers, lives and the passion of bartending. This week we caught it with Mo Aljaf, one of the two schmucks of Barcelona. We talk about his start being a bartender slash bouncer combo in Amsterdam, knocking on doors to find a space in Barcelona and the eventual opening of two schmucks. With this podcast we want to peel back the mask and discover just how the greats really became the greats. So sit back and enjoy. Hello, my name is Mo Jaf. I am co-owner and uh, main schmuck at Two Schmucks in Barcelona.
1: Awesome that uh, you managed to find the time to be here with us today. How is Singapore treating you? Dude, it's
0: filling me with joy. Singapore is such a fantastic city with such an incredible industry and I'm happy and grateful to be here.
1: What were you here for? What did you do?
0: So we did a few events together with Fort Chin and the guys from the Pontiac. We, uh, we went to Hong Kong to do an event at the Pontiac. And then when we did that together with Beckley Franks, we figured let's do Singapore as well. Why not? We're, we're right over that side of the pond. So let's just get at it. And so then we decided to come here and we did an event at Neon Pigeon last night.
1: How did you find uh, Hong Kong?
0: Hong Kong had a crazy energy. It was really... The hustle is real. The energy is real. People are just going after it. It's just active. Um, I really liked it. Uh, There was a lot of love.
1: That's awesome. Uh, You know, that's what I find uh, with Asia, generally speaking, is that there is a lot of love around, you know?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's something that almost a little bit... Uh, like You see it from from coming where we're from and I'm like, oh my God, these guys are so close and they have such a tight bond and it's happy to be a part of, even though if it's for a couple of days, it's happy to be here and be a part of that.
1: So let's uh, start to talk about you. We, we know that you started your career in bartending a while ago, but uh, we probably know you uh, best. Uh, like The first time I kind of heard about you was with Legacy, uh, but how did you get to that stage? So, um, I've basically, I've been in the nightlife
0: industry now for maybe around 10 years, probably 10 years. Yeah, I'm 29. I started when I was around 19. And I started in the most unglamorous way possible. I left home as early as I could. uh, And I started around in the red light district in Amsterdam, (laughs) I was, uh, yeah, I was (laughs) (laughs) not doing that. Uh, It's a very vibrant bar area though, but I started actually just giving out flyers on the street because I couldn't get any job and uh, giving out flyers on the street, you would make a small commission. Uh, It was for the pub crawl and so I was just on the street giving out flyers and one day one of the bars that we would go to with this pub crawl, they said that they were hiring people and uh, it was a dive bar in the red light district and I... uh, I lied my ass off on a resume. I said that I had so much experience.
1: Who didn't, right? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah,
0: right. Uh, The manager, Zach, he he completely saw through that shit. Like, he knew I was lying, but he liked that I tried so hard to get this job. And he put me... um, This bar, they also had a little hostel. So he put me for the first six months on... uh, I was a bouncer at the door because of my size, (laughs) and I was uh, a graveyard shift at the reception. So I'd work from midnight to 6 a.m. Okay. Uh, And then I would encourage the guys at the bar to try to call in sick because I wanted to work in the bar so much. And I was like, I'll cover your shift, man. I'll cover your shift. So um, in the beginning, I would work these crazy hours to try to get into the bar a little bit. And then I covered more and more shifts and got into the bar eventually. But... I didn't really start working with cocktails or with cocktail bars until five, six years into working in bars. It was I worked in Amsterdam for a few years. I worked for a few months in Barcelona. And then uh, I was in India for a little while. And then I worked in Thailand for a year. And in all these places, I had just worked a lot of dive bars, really. But um, what I didn't realize back then... Is that i was learning so many different aspects of the bar that didn't have to do with cocktails that came to fruition for me a lot later now that we're running our own bar um and at one point i moved to norway where i started working as a barista uh because i was like you know what let's learn about coffee why not um and i met aj in that barista place he was the one who was teaching me about coffee aj is now my partner at Tushmucks. um the same company that i worked for a barista for they were the same company that opened him mm-hmm. so uh when they were opening hancock they were you know they sent out a message to the company that they're opening this new bar and anyone who was interested could apply and i thought you know what let's try this crazy cocktails thing why not you know <laughs> So from the cocktail side, I haven't had that much experience, but I think I learned a lot about it quickly because I had already spent all that time learned to learn everything else about bars. Mm -hmm. So uh, I got to work with some amazing people and I learned a lot in Himcook and then over there I entered Legacy, Bacardi Legacy, and that went surprisingly well, much better than I expected.
1: So before we get into legacy, a few questions about uh, Amsterdam because I find uh, very interesting the fact that you worked in the red light district. <laughs> what kind of clientele do you get in your bar when you're there? Wow. Well, there was a really. You had to have a lot of Dutch
0: courage. Yeah. <laughs> there was a. It was a very rough clientele and it was a recipe for disaster. So these guys basically. They hired a whole bunch of big people that was the size of me, and they hired them as bartenders because the law wasn't in Amsterdam that you needed to hire a bouncer back then. Now they've changed the law, so now you need a bouncer. Uh, And so they would hire guys like me to be behind a bar. And what we were allowed to drink for free behind the bar was Jägermeisters and Red Bull. So it was jäger bombs. It was a lot and a lot of jäger bombs, Stop and then we up. were the bouncers. So you imagine a nineteen-year-old hopped up on jäger bombs, trying to kick someone out of a bar in the red light district. It was a recipe for absolute disaster. Um, it was a lot of fun in the low season. We would get these stag dudes that was like from the countryside of Germany or Scotland or England, and it was this really rough bunch of people that like to drink and take a lot of drugs um the first year that i worked the first years that i worked in a bar i cleaned up puke at least once or twice a night because weed is legal and we sold cheap shots and people were allowed to smoke weed and we sold junk food as well oh that, so, that's, that's another good recipe there that's another good recipe for disaster of for cleaning puke so The roughest part of this industry, I I got that as uh, as my intro
1: to (laughs) what this was. Started at the deep end of it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what made you think uh, you wanted to travel and work in uh, Asian countries as you did?
0: Well, after I worked with bars for a little while, I knew that I wanted to continue with it. But I always had this this uh, this feeling of not wanting to sit still. And I and I could never pinpoint it, and I was always looking for something, and so I kept on traveling and traveling and traveling, and bartending was a job I could take with me. Um, so wherever I went, I could I knew that as long as I speak English and I know how to bartend, I'll find at least this Irish pub somewhere in the world that will hire you, you know. And so I knew that I could take that with me, and I wanted to travel and. Uh, I never really like to travel just for a few days. I love to go to a new place and live there at least for a few months and get to know the people and where you go to eat and where you go and hang out. And so I did that for a while. And it took me around five or six years before I realized that there was such a thing as the industry. Mm that bartenders and bar owners used to get together and share ideas and talk with each other. I had no idea that was a thing. I thought it was just like, oh, whatever, bartending is just a job. And after all these years, I uh, I went to, I remember going to the first ever bar show and I was just speechless. After five years of working in bars, I had no idea no one got together. And then I went to a bar show and I was like, all these people from all these bars are getting together Uh, and there was such an energy and it was it was so much fun to be a part of and i was uh, i was
1: hooked but you know also like set aside the fact that uh, you have started uh, your career uh, about 10 years ago and you worked uh, with a lot in customer service effectively which is what we do Mm. Uh, before you got into cocktails i think one of the reasons why You said you picked up the pace on cocktails or craft cocktails. I use the word craft very loosely. (laughs) Uh, Is the fact that we do share a lot of information. And to start bartending today or to Mm. start learning about cocktails today, it's a much easier task than, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago. 100%. Way more information. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So much, so much. And I think it definitely is true, um, to quote Sasha Petraske, uh, that everything you need to learn about cocktails, you can learn within a year Mm -hmm. but learning about people learning about bars learning about like my first ever manager i'll never forget um without me even knowing he taught me so much about light and music and i had no idea but every day he would come into the bar and he would say a couple of sentences about the music and a couple of sentences about the lights and why i should change it like this and why i should change it like that and i thought he was just being on me Mm -hmm. and then years later when we were doing our own lights and music, I was like, oh. That's why. Yeah, he gave me all this information and I didn't even know that I had it this whole time. Um, And that became an integral part of what we do in our bar and what we do today. So every aspect of it, obviously, to become a successful bar, uh, there's so many different aspects, but the Cocktails things was definitely uh, an interesting one.
1: Talking about legacy, It's a very unique competition uh, in the sense that there is a heavy focus on uh, the marketing side rather than the drink side itself. Mm. At least that's how I perceive it. What made you think uh, that was a competition you could enter and how did you go about it? So Legacy was the first ever cocktail competition that I entered. The very first? The very first. Wow, congratulations.
0: (laughs) Thank you. And it was probably the last serious cocktail competition that I entered. It was the one and only, you know. That's and, it. One shot. Yeah. No yeah that. In, in and out. <laughs> I entered Legacy. Uh, the BA, Alex Roros, he came in one day. He handed me an invitation. And then Chris Moore and Shaveen Shabaskani from London, they came to Norway. And they did a talk. And I went to that talk. And I remember seeing, and it was the first time I heard about a cocktail competition. And this, this was all very new to me. To give you an idea... When you enter Legacy in Norway, one of the things they ask you in the very early preliminary rounds, they ask you to do a daiquiri. And I was so paranoid about my recipe for a daiquiri that I was asking people, like, "Uh, uh, what is the exact perfect (laughs) specs for a classic daiquiri? And that was me entering Legacy, right? And it was like a few months after entering Legacy, I was doing some guest shifts and I was... You know, there was so much of like, uh, I don't think I should be here doing this. You <laughs> know, <laughs> There was so much of that. Um, but it was a lot of what we do with our bug today, which is fixing the plane while you're flying it. There was a lot of that. And um, it was just a lot of like, just take off and figure it out along the way. Um And we started doing legacy and it was something that i remember alex tried to get me to join these other competitions but nothing seemed really that interesting to me um i entered legacy it seemed like a very straightforward you create one classic cocktail and then they had this marketing aspect of it which i thought i was going to not like but then it turns out that this whole time, that was my sweet spot for this industry. I absolutely love the marketing. I love the branding side of this industry, and that's my main job right now within our own brand, Two Schmucks, and within our own bar in Barcelona.
1: And uh, how did you? What was your uh, core legacy idea, and how did you put it into place? Because there's a lot of people who are thinking about entering it. So,
0: yeah. So basically, there was there was a few things now. Chris Moore and Chev would talk to me a lot about how you need to tell a story behind your cocktail and how some classic cocktails had this very defining story. Um, So I put a lot of emphasis on the story. Um, My drink in particular, the story was that um, the flavors were inspired by a childhood memory and that was mainly because i was watching a lot of chef's table chef's table just came out season Uh, one uh, uh, you know and all the chefs were talking about you know childhood memories and i was like well that would be cool to take a childhood memory and reinterpret it into a cocktail um and uh, there was a lot of that within trying to make this drink and there was a lot of trying to kind of like be very very extremely self-aware i wanted to do something that was just like just a regular reflection without trying to be someone else mm-hmm. and my main thing with you know with starting within the cocktail bars was I understood that I wanted to learn it and I wanted to know a lot about it. I was never really super comfortable in most cocktail bars back then you know I wasn't I wasn't in my own skin and I wasn't being myself and after we were at a point where we were um, independent enough to do our own thing, that's where I was confident enough to go like, well, I want to do amazing cocktails and amazing service, but I want to do it dressed the way I am, looking like the way I am, and the vibe with the music that we like. And back then, there wasn't a lot of that. It was like, if you were a cocktail bar, it was very, a lot of classic cocktail bars, and you Jazzy, needed a dark, uh... yeah, an iron shirt and a mm. tie, and it was something like, my neck is really thick. Most colors of shirt, they don't fit around my neck. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's why you're good as a (laughs) a bouncer. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So, legacy went reasonably well. Uh, How long have you lived in Oslo for? I lived in Oslo for a year and a half. It's a very particular city to live in, right? Yeah,
0: so when you're in Sweden, there's a lot of Swedish people that move to Oslo because the pay is usually a bit better and there's very high demand for uh, F&B workers and hospitality workers in Norway and in Oslo. So there's all Swedish people that moved there. I knew a few Swedish friends that had moved there and worked there and I definitely did not want to move back to Sweden. But I thought I'll go to Oslo, I'll work for a little bit and I'll save some money. It was never my intentions to start to learn about coffee or about cocktails, mm-hmm. but it just came my way and I embraced it.
1: Did you like what is it that you liked about Oslo specifically and what made you decide? Uh, my next destination will definitely be somewhere warmer because Barcelona and Oslo are kind of the opposite of each other. Yeah,
0: I absolutely hated Oslo. Uh, Yeah, but it was a very disciplinary kind of like, I was like, all right, I know I'm here to learn stuff. I know I'm here. It was more like I took it more as like education. I was like, all right, well, I'm here to learn this stuff. And I might not like the city, but I need to put in my time and learn this stuff. And I knew that I worked with some really good people and some really good bars and and then at one point when I felt good enough about it, I was like, you know what, Uh, from all this traveling and all these cities I've lived in, the one place that I would like to be in that I thought that the balance was good and the people were good was in Barcelona. Um, And I had a good partner and I knew some people in Barcelona and you know, I suggested the ID to AJ, my partner and then we just yeah we booked a one-way ticket and we moved down to barcelona
1: that's uh takes a lot of balls huh yeah 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 so but basically you went to from a market that where you worked for a year and a half and you learned a lot Mm. to a market that was completely new to you how did you try to fill up the gaps and how did you try to understand how the market works
0: well so when we got there we tried to reach out to a lot of people, I worked with a bar that was uh, some really great people called Krebs Alborn in Barcelona for a few months. But even when we were in Barcelona, we understood that um, both me and AJ were at a point in our lives where we were like, we will either work for ourselves or we're out of this industry. And we understood that if, we, if it was this ultimatum, we understood that that's when you're ready to open and run your own place when the water is almost up to your chin and you're like, all right, I can't. We, we both had a lot of creative ideas and there was nothing else we wanted to do more than create our own ideas. Um, so when we got to Barcelona, I did something that was a little bit um, stupid now that I think about it, but I'm glad I did it. Um, so I had just done Legacy and it went really well. And I went back to Norway and they had this award ceremony where I was, I got Norwegian best bartender and Scandinavian best bartender. And I was coming up in Norway and the same month I moved away from Scandinavia to an industry into a place where no one knew me. And uh, me and AJ didn't work in bars for the first year living in Barcelona. So it was a little bit like all that little bit of wave and hype that I had worked for. Mm -hmm. Um, kind of died off yeah and the reason we didn't do that is because we got this idea from a friend we started an airbnb and we started our airbnbs and we realized that when you have an airbnb um, you can achieve something that most bartenders need but we never have which is you get to a point where you have both time and money okay because for us bartenders if you work a lot you have no time but you will save a little bit of money. But then as soon as we're off, we go to places like Atlas or yes. Mobar and all these <laughs> places. And then, you know, obviously we like to go to nice restaurants and nice bars and we like to spend our money in nice restaurants and nice bars. And we knew for us to be able to fulfill our IDs, we needed to reach a space where we had a little bit of breathing room. Um, and Airbnb was the key to that. So we went down to Barcelona, we started some Airbnbs, uh, and then when we got a little bit of room to breathe, we started creating our own IDs and mm-hmm. what we wanted to do with the bar and how we wanted it to be, and, yeah, looking for the bar
1: space, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. How long did it take you to find the space? Because that's one of the main challenges, is it? Yeah, so in Barcelona, they don't give out new licenses. You have to buy an
0: existing place, which means... I mean, how do you do that, right? Do you go to agencies? Do you speak with people when you don't even speak Spanish? Like, where do you go? So what we did is uh, when I was a teenager, I used to work with telemarketing, cold sales. And uh, I just went back to that. I printed out like 200 cards every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We went around and we knocked on doors like, hey, man, it's Friday. It's 11 p.m. Your bar is empty do you want to sell it sometimes they kicked us out sometimes they they said no uh, but yeah we must have gone over four months we did this uh, so we must have gone to hundreds of places we got like uh, 50 callbacks like 20 serious meetings until finally i walk into a bar where we're regular at it's called betty ford and uh i'm having a coffee i'm taking a break in between going around knocking on doors And the owner of that bar, a friend of mine, he said, well, why don't you go and check next door? Because they were just shut down by the police last night. And the thing in Barcelona is that if you're shut down by the police, you have a lot of fines and you have a lot of things that you need to pay. You're obviously about to go bankrupt. But if you sell your license, you're cleared. And if you sell your business, you're cleared out of all that stuff. So the system is kind of set up for you. To just sell your to license just, to yeah, someone else it's it kind go. of like if you want to keep it you're going to get a lot of penalty but if you s- decide to sell it to someone else you're good so we were there knocking on his door within less than 24 hours and he was surprised he was like how did you guys even know you're <laughs> like in the beginning i thought it was luck but now i'm like you know what no fuck luck. we were out there four months knocking doors sooner or later this place was going to come our way no indeed and
1: and then also luck is a combination of opportunity and preparation yeah you're not prepared you can't yeah so we
0: were out there all the time and we were knocking doors and the only reason we found this place is because
1: i was in this place and i was asking him so yeah and how did you go about opening it so first of all like because one of the issues with venues is that once you find the space you sort of have to adapt yourself to it what were the issues that you had when you walked in there and how much of it did you, did you keep how much of it did you strip away
0: so we um we went into the place and there was a lot of shit it looked like a junkie's apartment it was a very very weird space and we understood def- immediately why the place got shut down uh, why did it get shut down actually well the so it was owned by this israeli it guy and he had no business being in this business you know it was like i don't even know why he invested in a restaurant and it was a taco joint and he had just given the keys to the head chef and asked the head chef to run the whole space and the head chef had a drug problem and it was like they came and did a check and there was food on the floor that was meant to be served and they could only have in 50 people and they had in 120 people uh way later than the hours they were allowed to serve etc cetera, etc cetera. and uh, neighbors complaining and all that kind of stuff
1: you're quite good at spotting recipes for disaster huh? Eh? oh
0: yeah story of my life
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> organized chaos um and yeah and so we went in there and uh you know a license is like a piece of property in barcelona um so you buy it and then if you take care of it and if you value the bar you can sell it for a much higher price and so the license he wanted a hundred and seventeen thousand euros for it. Um, we had between me, James, our third partner, and AJ, we had forty-five thousand combined. But we were working with this bank to get this loan that was going to spot us the rest. At this point, we were a bit unknown. We couldn't get an investor if we wanted to. We barely would get a mail back from a brand if like we wanted to to ask them for help or whatever. So no one really knew about us and no one really was out there. And so we said, we told the guy, okay, well, we're about to get this loan from the bank. Uh, And the bank, we gave them business plan of a lifetime. I had worked so hard on this. Projections, market research, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, And so the bank was like, well, this is some of the best, one of the better proposals we've seen for a bar. Your model is guaranteed this loan, but it's going to take like around a month and a half to process everything. So oh, we that's told the a long guy, time that's a very, very long time. Yeah. So we told this guy, well, hey, can we drop it down on deposit and can you hold it for us? Because he had other buyers that was waiting there. Now, it's important to note that the other buyers were Spanish. And this guy, having done business in Spain, even though he was not from there, he had been hustled by a lot of Spanish people including his own lawyer. Mm -hmm. A lot of people had taken advantage of him. Um, And so he said, you know what? Okay. Uh, So we gave him a 10,000 euro deposit. And I don't care who you are away from, 10,000 euros. It's 10,000 euros, Euros, right? right. Uh, After a month and a half, there was some kind of mistake. And the bank said, I'm sorry, we can't give you this loan.
1: Like, that's it?
0: Yeah, that's it. Uh, and so we were there. Like, not only are we back on square zero, we've lost ten thousand euros. Is this even gonna happen? Are we folding down? What's happening? And so I called the guy and I booked a meeting with him. And I sat down and I told him our entire story. I said who we are, where are we from, why we want to do this, and I told him, look, we only have the forty-five grand, but if you're willing, um, we'll pay you as much as we can every month for the first six months seven months until we've paid it off. Um, And yeah, he said, let me think about it. And Him being an IT guy, he went home and he looked through Google. He Googled us. He saw some shit, some videos we've done for Legacy and stuff like that. Uh, And through this time, through this month and a half, our lawyer had helped him avoid some fines and stuff because his own lawyer was hustling him. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, so he decided that you know what, I'll give it to you guys. To this day, I'm like, man, if I had some guys with all the money ready or a couple of schmucks that wanted Ah, to pay me month by month, (laughs) I would have given it to the guys with the money ready. But, you know, he decided to give it to us. And uh, that's one of the reasons why it was called Two Schmucks because we couldn't even, we had 2,000 euros to build a bar. Um, Like we didn't even have seating in the beginning. We built everything DIY. Our bar station was one of those beer fridges that opened from the top. Uh, we had a few benches. A friend of ours borrowed us a whole bunch of power tools. So we just bought a whole bunch of wood and we built this stuff. And it was like electric wires hanging, water dripping uneven floor. But the cocktails were good and the service was good. And people appreciated
1: that. They really liked it.
0: And uh, yeah, the first six months, it was only me and AJ working.
1: So you opened a bar with 2,000 euros. 2,000, well we yeah so we
0: renovated the bar for two thousand euros yeah and then we opened and then the first six months it was only me and aj because we had the airbnbs again back to the airbnbs we didn't need a salary so the airbnbs had our back so then we were working without a salary still until today we've been working without a salary still airbnbs are covering us shout out to airbnb that's (laughs) Um, awesome yeah and so uh basically that's why we call it two schmucks for six months after six months we had paid him off and then we said our initial idea was to take on an investor and some brand money after six months show them look man we're doing good now you can see the business do you want to invest or whatever but then after six months we were like you know what if we do this for another 12 months we'll have saved up enough money to do the renovation ourselves and we can fund everything ourselves and we'll be our own owners No investors, no nothing. We'll own 33% of it each. And uh, that's what we decided to do. So we hired a few people. And then when the time came, uh, we decided, are we going to change the name? And we said, nah, screw it. Two schmucks, it will be two schmucks. You know, whether we're the two schmucks and all the people that end up borrowing two schmucks, we'll just decided to keep the name. And then in January of 2019, we shut down. And we did a renovation and we reopened 1st of July.
1: So when you took over the bar at the very beginning, you sort of had to open not your dream place, but what you could open with the budget that you had. Yeah. So I'm assuming that you had some sort of design limitations, right? A
0: hundred percent. Yeah, we were only using 30% of the space. So um, half the space had a floor that was quite high up. And then the other half was split into a mezzanine floor and a down floor. And both those floors were under 2 meters and 20 centimeters, which uh, didn't allow any consumers to be there, according to Barcelona law. Okay. So, again, we saw this place from floor to roof, from wall to wall, and we understood if we destroy all of this, lower the floor, we can create one big spacious room. Uh, Obviously, we knew we need a lot of money for this. So over the 18 months that we were there we learned as much as we could about the space where all the beams were how everything went how everything happened to the point where when we did the renovations we were so educated about our own space so we eventually didn't need architects we just needed really good contractors and we had been planning the design ourselves because we'd been in there for 18 months so we had the time to sit down and go like, this is how we should do this. This is how the benches should be. Um, so way before we started our renovation, we already knew exactly how it was going to look like.
1: So when you reopen uh, your, at this point, dream bar, right? Because mm. it's exactly the projection of what you had in mind from yeah. the very beginning. Yeah. So what was the brief? What was the idea behind it?
0: Well, when we ran the first two schmucks, uh, after a year, we found what our concept finally was. It was a five-star dive bar. That's what it was. It was a dive bar uh, with a five-star service that we tried to do. With this new bar, with this new two schmucks, um, right now it feels like getting a brand new house that is unfurnished, right? And it's your house, but it's not your home yet. And we can't force it. It's going to take us some time to make us feel at home. With the first two schmucks, it took us a year before I could even explain what kind of style of bar it was. But with this other two schmucks, what we want to really try to create is kind of more like a living room feeling, like you're at someone's house. And we tell all the people that work with us um, when they approach hosting or when they approach the guests to treat it like you're hosting someone at your house. Um, My earliest experience of hospitality is my mom giving me shit when my friends would come over when I was a kid because I didn't offer them like juice or cookies or that kind of stuff and I always tell them treat it like you're hosting a house party and the people in your house hey how you doing go around mingle speak with everyone and so we try to treat it like that vibe um and uh, we're trying to find our own way kind of as we're going through it but yeah
1: how big is your team
0: right now we are a total of six people Okay. So not that big. We're going to expand the team by a few people. But right now, me and AJ are still doing uh, a very heavy full-time behind the bar. Mm -hmm. Uh, But me and AJ will both be going down to two, three days a week behind the bar to have half the week to work in in the business and half the week to work at the business.
1: And um, how was uh, your bar perceived by the local community? Obviously, I think you had a good relationship with the bar next to you which is the guy yeah 100
0: well we're in a very amazing area which is called the raval and the raval is kind of like this it's been this immigrant filled area which is it was the right neighborhood for us we were so lucky to find a bar there because it was exactly what we needed uh, it was the area that accepted us for being foreigners for being english-speaking foreigners um, and it's an area which has got an amazing mix of expats of locals and of tourists any given day when I look across the bar, I'll see some Spanish people, I'll see some German and Swedish expats, and I'll see some American tourists all in the same night in the bar. And that, that makes me happy. I, I truly totally believe that the people in your bar decides the atmosphere of your bar. And so we try to create a space that will reflect
1: that. And how was this perceived by your uh, peers, by the other bartenders in town?
0: It's good we have uh, we have a very tight community with uh, some of the other bartenders in town obviously we do a lot of events as well a lot of industry events and I think so when we started two schmucks again we went of being incredibly self-aware and we were like it was when we started two schmucks it was at uh, at the peak of the going local trend right where everyone was like Every cocktail bar, everyone wanted to do the, you know, the ten kilometer menu and the foraging and uh, everything's uh-huh. from across the street, you know. And we were going completely the opposite because I was like, look, we can do the Spanish thing good, but it will never be us. Because and we can not Spanish. no, exactly. Mm-hmm. And we can never do it really great. And we're like, at the end of the day, we wanted to open our own space to be ourselves. I wanted to wake up and just be my own brand. Right? And I also believe that when you look at a lot of successful bars like you look at the Dead Rabbit and you look at Jack and Sean, those are Irish boys from the pub. And you can definitely see that, you mm-hmm. know, and how they are and how they like kind of behave themselves. And I was like, I really just want to be myself. I want my brand to reflect that. So then we said, well, the same reason why you would go to an Indian restaurant in London right, is for escapism. Right, You want to feel that like you're somewhere else for the evening. And we were like, why can't our bar be like that for the Spanish people? Why can't we be escapism? So when they want to feel like they're not in Spain, they'll come to our bar. So it was really the anti-local uh, bar. But I think it was also a breath of fresh air. And in the while, it was a little bit, you know, we'd have a lot of Spanish people that come in and ask for the red wine with Fanta lemonade or the Brugal and Coca-Cola or... <laughs> The, this stuff dessert. that we didn't have. But over, over over a while, we got our own regulars of Spanish people and chefs and bartenders that perceive this as something positive. How big is your menu? So we have a 10-cocktail menu that we change quite frequently, at least once a month, sometimes even more frequent. And then we have a classic cocktail menu where every classic cocktail has been... Uh, It's kind of like a spirits list and a cocktail menu combined. And every bottle, because we don't have such a big back bar, 40 bottles, 39 to be exact. Oh, that's very cool, Uh, actually. Yeah, and so we have one classic cocktail that we think is perfect with that bottle. Okay. With that specific bottle, whether that's forged gin or whether that's Hendrix Gin or um, Haymas Old Tom, we have one classic cocktail that fits every one of those bottles. Um, So we have a classic cocktail menu of around 30, 40 classic cocktails, and then
1: the 10 cocktail menu that we change quite frequently. So to address uh, the elephant uh, in every Spanish room, gin tonic is massive in Spain, (laughs) is it? Yeah, gin tonic is
0: massive. like everything else that was gimmicky and annoying and weird i felt that it was a necessity <laughs> right all these all this stuff was a necessity because it opened the spanish people for the option of what a different bottle does to a simple drink what you know different herbs and botanicals do and it opened a lot of spanish people's eyes for craft cocktails so first they started with the gin tonic and then they saw, said maybe I'll try this gin fizz, and then they went on and maybe tried some more cocktails. So obviously credit goes where credit is due. But as us going hard into escapism and not being Spanish, Argentonic is a very incredibly minimal one. So I've done a highball glass with no uh, garnish, a distilled acid solution. So it's just this. It looks like a glass of sparkling water. Uh, but it's a gentonic, yeah but it's a but it's a gentonic, yeah so we said okay we're not gonna do the fishbowl we're not gonna do all those garnishes uh but we've worked hard on it to create this unique gentonic that we've gotten a lot of praise from spanish people so that makes me very very happy also i think spanish people are a little bit sick of those bowls now it's been there for quite a few years so they are been finally, there for a decade even yeah, more,
1: yeah yeah they're finally over it which is good <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Uh, earlier on you mentioned uh, the importance of music uh, how do you go about it and what music do you play in your bar we play mainly old school hip-hop music
0: i have a belief that old school hip-hop music works in every scenario if it's two people in your bar it works if your bar is packed the bass line together with the instrument in old school hip-hop music it works Uh, So we play mainly that. We change it up a little bit. We put a lot of emphasis on the speakers. And, you know, we want everyone to be able to have a conversation, yet have the music there. At any given point, if you feel like you want to listen to the music, it's there. But if you want to have a conversation, you can clearly have one as well, especially across the bar. So we try to look at that and adapt and change that all the time.
1: That sounds very cool. Uh, Hip-hop is becoming... More and more a thing in uh, cocktail bars. I think as you mentioned, uh, when you started to get into cocktails, like about five, say five, six years ago, it was this like sort of dark room, jazzy, woody, brownster yeah. drinks. Well, now we're moving towards this like, minimalistic drinks, hip hop rooms.
0: Yeah, and again, I believe that, that from a few years ago, it needed to happen. Because cocktails had gone through so much of like, uh, oh, I'm getting ripped off uh, from like the consumer's point of view right, from whether it's the Long Islands or the Sex on the Beaches and that kind of stuff. And so you needed to go through that area where the bartender needed to look respectable and have all that really fine stuff in the jazz music for people to give credibility to cocktails again, you know. And then... What's happening right now, it's beautiful, because now we're getting such a diverse range of cocktail bars, Uh, whether it's a super minimal bar, uh, maximalistic bar, which I love. And I think that hip-hop music helps uh, bring it down to earth a little bit, uh, in my opinion. And I also believe that back in the day, you used to decorate like your restaurant and play the music and stuff that you grew up with. Like you'd go to an old school Italian place and you'd see a picture of Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. And it was this jazz music. And it was what the owners grew up with and liked. And so when you go into our bar, you'll see these images of Easy e and Nas and Notorious. And you play the hip mount music. It was because me and AJ, that's what we grew up with. So we wanted to put a piece of ourselves into our bar. And I think a lot more people nowadays are growing up with hip hop as it's becoming more popular. And so they're like, well, if I can play that music that I quite enjoy and I can get away with it and it fits with the room and it fits with the people, then why are we not doing it?
1: Yeah, the only thing you need now is to make sure you have Jesse there on uh, Saturday nights uh, doing rap battles. Yeah. <laughs> Jesse Vida for everyone listening to this, has a music video
0: somewhere out there. If anyone can find it, can you please send it to me? Yeah, send it to me too. <laughs> if
1: whoever can find it, please do send us the video. <laughs> He's going to hate us for this. I know, right? So talking about bars getting less and less formal, it's something that I've noticed is happening a lot with fine dining as well. I think it's an evolution that bars and restaurants are doing almost simultaneously. Yeah. And I really appreciate that because it makes food uh, for us that we, we still work with flavors, but we don't work with food yeah. uh, that much. It still makes it way more accessible and easier to digest. hundred percent.
0: I remember when I, when I was growing up, it was my belief that a steakhouse was the pinnacle of restaurants. It was like as fancy as it gets. <laughs> That's as fine dining, you know, white cloth, get a steak like i thought that was like the nicest amount of restaurants and now it's like whether it's amazing asian food that you get from these really cool places uh two of my favorite restaurants in the states is mission chinese and turkey and the wolf and both those places are like you know plastic chairs really weird atmospheres but it's both made of chefs who worked in really high up restaurants and then decided you know what let's do our own atmosphere our own vibe, and have a good time. And I'm so happy that's finally going through. And I'm so happy there's more places like that. And I believe that the reason for that is because you see a lot more uh, chef-owned restaurants, bartender-owned bars, barista-owned cafes. And the more you see of that, I
1: think the more you'll see of this non-formal vibe. But I also think that there is a shift in consumers' perception because uh, the perceived value of a tablecloth it's decreasing sensibly, yeah, you know? Yeah. Or the perceived yeah. value of a bartender wearing a tie is also decreasing. Yeah. And
0: I mean, I don't think that's only in our industry. I think it's like in offices and whether it's Facebook or Google, where like billionaires are going around in sweatpants or whatever. It's like, I think there's a whole kind of all around the world, it's kind of, you know, it's no longer the super high up and nice thing to be the super formal person. And, uh, I mean, I'm happy for that because mm, yeah. that's kind of like fits me perfectly.
1: <laughs> but also, I think it makes it easier for people to go out and enjoy things because it's, yes, you still have the, I think it's this important to have those fancy places where you have this sense of occasion when you walk in and yeah. you, you sort of need to make the effort in order to dress and, and match the room. Yeah. But I, I think it's also important to have a place where you go out on a Tuesday night and you have a cracking drink, an amazing bit of food, and you don't need to wear a suit for it. absolutely. Uh, What's the future for TUSHMAX?
0: Well, right now we're focusing on just... uh, We just opened after a renovation. We still have a little bit to work on. We just want to hit that ROI as uh, fast as possible. So we're working a lot at the business. Uh, And then we're looking to see... One of my partners wants to do another place, maybe in Barcelona. Um, We've been looking around the world for a little bit but more than anything we want to steady and create two schmucks as our little um as our little rock kind of like this is the place that is our little baby that we'll take care of uh and then from there we'll see we'll see where we want to go and what we want to do but we're all very kind of like we travel a lot and i'm looking around the world a lot and it's i'm just uh humbled and happy that i get to see so much of this industry and at no point when i started working in the red light district did i think that you know i'm gonna be in singapore in this awesome place and speaking with you for example <laughs> Probably, yeah like like crazy stuff like that it's uh it's uh, it's quite weird for
1: me talking about uh, industry mentors who is it that you look up to or who was your sort of inspiration <laughs> behind uh, your development or like you becoming who you are we talked about chris Moore a little bit and his background into legacy yeah
0: chris moore and Chev was the guys who got me to join into legacy um for sure but from bartending point of view um i watched every video of jeffrey morgenthaler like i would go home at 5 a.m and crunch two of those videos um i remember seeing schneider at hey bartender mm-hmm. that was uh, when i saw hey bartender and i saw a lot about the industry and you know, I'd see those early videos with Dominique Venegas and Steve Schneider and Jeffrey Morgenthaler, Jamie Boudreau. Uh, Jamie Boudreau. You yeah. The videos. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah, good yeah. Good. The Raising videos. The yeah, yeah, yeah. Raising the bar. Yeah. That Jamie Boudreau used to do. I used to crunch through those videos to try to learn everything. I remember thinking like, oh, he soaked his tables in Angostura.
1: That's the coolest thing ever. How, how awesome is that? Like, yeah. Which, is it Canon in Seattle? Yeah. They painted with Angostura. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, yeah. How cool is that? I think so. And
0: uh, and all these people, well, Morgenthaler particularly, his style and the way that he was like being himself and being easygoing behind a bar and already from the early days, he was never the fancy guy. You know, and he was like, he was, I remember him telling a story on a video where he said that he'd gone to Germany for this event and everyone was super fancy and he was there doing the Jägerita, which was a margarita (laughs) with Jägermeister and everyone drank it and loved it. And it is an absolutely fantastic drink if you haven't had it. Um, And I was like, oh, wow, this is the guy that showed me that, oh, you can do this industry. But you can be easygoing and have fun. Like, you don't need to... And and that's when I was like, oh, there's a different aspect of this cocktail industry where it doesn't need to be the super formal stuff. Uh, It can be a bit more relaxed and easygoing.
1: You know, Jaeger gets a lot of steak, but it's actually a decent product. eh?
0: It's an absolutely decent product. Jaeger. I mean, Jaeger is like Fernandez, you know? It's kind of like... It's just that, you know... They went, they went hard in the paint on that shot marketing. <laughs> yeah, they did. You know, they kind of like, they thought that was going to last forever. So they were like, yo, Jägerbombs for life.
1: <laughs> but I think they still make money out of it. A
0: hundred percent. I think they never stop making money out of that stuff.
1: Well, you're the number one ambassador for uh, Jäger in the Netherlands, <laughs> So,
0: Daniel Schofield is the number one ambassador for Jägerbombs. He created the champagne bomb where he drops a shot of Jägermeister into champagne back when he was working at Coupette. So, yeah, he destroyed me with those. So yeah,
1: I, I don't know why, but such, it sounds like it's such a bad idea. I <laughs> don't know why would anyone <laughs> want to do that. Yeah, cool. oh I think it, it was uh, awesome to talk to you. Uh, there is a last question I ask everyone, so I'd yeah. like to ask that to you. If you could choose your very last drink, what would that drink be? <sighs> of the night or of forever? Your life. You're about to be electrocuted. All right, I'll have a
0: daiquiri. Daiquiri what? Yeah, I'll have a smackery taking taking in one go. So, <laughs> all right, let's do this shit. Let's get it over with. Let's get electrocuted. <laughs> awesome.
1: to talk to you. Thank you so much, Mo. Thank
0: you so much, brother.
1: We hope you enjoyed our interview with Mo.
0: We are unjigged under underscore media on Instagram. And you can follow our accounts at mmariotti89 for Michele, Alex J. Murphy for myself, and Adrian Bessa for Adrian. Thank you for listening.